Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. What the truth? You can't handle the truth. Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here are your hosts, Rob Dalrymple and Vinny Angelo. Hey, welcome in everyone. We are continuing our series in reading through the New Testament in a year. We're hanging out in the uh, Gospel, Luke, and we're going to do something different today than we have in the, the previous few Gospels where we've brought in a biblical scholar to actually engage in something. We're, I'm really excited. Today's going to be a really cool, different way of engaging with someone who's noted and has contributed to society in a different kind of way. So Rob, what are we, what are we doing today? Yeah, so we're really excited. We've been focusing on the distinctions between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of the world kind of as we wrestle with Jesus and the Gospels. And we've seen just over and over again, Jesus is teaching that the kingdom of God says we're to care for the poor and the oppressed, even as Luke says, even if it doesn't benefit us in the now, and how this was antithetical to the ways of the Roman Empire. So we started to ask, and Vinny and I have kind of asked over the last couple of podcasts, these questions of like, what does this mean for us today? And as we were wrestling with these questions, we thought one of the best persons to wrestle with this with is Lisa Sharon Harper. So Lisa Sharon Harper is a prolific speaker, writer, and activist. She's the author of several books, including Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican or Democrat. She's also the writer of the critically acclaimed the Very Good Gospel, How Everything Wrong Can Be Made Right, which was the 2016 Book of the Year by the Inglewood Review of Books. And her newest book is Fortune, How Race Broke My Family and the World and How to Repair It All. Lisa's appeared on TV One, Fox News Online, NPR, and Al Jazeera America. She writes extensively on shalom and governance, immigration reform, healthcare reform, poverty, racial and gender justice, climate change, and transformational civic engagement. Her writing has been featured in the CNN Belief blog, the National Civic Review, Sojourners, the Huffington Post, Relevant Magazine, and Essence Magazine. She earned her master's degree in human rights from Columbia University, and in 2015, the Huffington Post named Lisa one of the 50 most powerful women religious leaders. In 2019, the Religion Communicators Council named Lisa's monthly Freedom Road podcast the best podcast series of the year. And in 2020, Lisa received the Bridge Award from the Selma Center for Nonviolence, Truth and Reconciliation, and recognition of her dedication to bridging divides and building the beloved community. So Lisa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Rob. Wow. That was quite the intro. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, and I skipped a lot of it, by the way, too. So, yeah, uh, I appreciate Lisa, that. Lisa, I have been deeply moved by your recent book, Fortune. I listened to it on audiobook and just had to go mm. back over several times, listen back and forth. Mm. And let's kind of begin there if we can, because it, mm. it's your sure. story. It's your story of your family and kind of give us a little bit of a background of where you've come from and, and where you're at today. Well, fortune traces 10 generations of my family. And so interesting when people ask me, well, who are you? Who is Lisa Sharon <laughs> yeah. Harper? That's a really dangerous question to ask me right now. Cause I mean, I'm thinking 10 generations back. So <laughs> yeah. I am, I am those who've come before me, literally their DNA is in me. They make, they make up who I am and they also influenced the, the path that I take. Now I understand that, um, you know, fortune who lived 10 generations ago, she, her body, she was a mixed race um, young girl. Her mother was Ulster Scott. Her father was Senegalese. And because of that mix, uh, that race mixture, um, she ended up absorbing the wrath of the very first race laws in, in Maryland and the colony of Maryland. And as a result, ended up being indentured for 31 years. And her and successive two successive generations after her were also indentured because of the way that those systems were formed. And slavery then, and race, and gender, and citizenship, all of those questions were all being formed at the exact same time through the exact same laws in, uh, in those first colonies, and, uh, and that impacted the generations of my family. So not only Fortune, but Leah, who was the last enslaved woman in our family, and Lizzie, um, her granddaughter, who was, went north on the Great Migration, and and ended up in Philadelphia, where my grandmother raised my mother, one block from where I'm sitting right now, wow. and and where I was raised, just right across town. And my mother, who was a member of SNCC, um, Student Nonviolent Coordinating um, Committee, and dated Stokely Carmichael for a minute, you know, and the guy who actually raised his fist and said Black Power. So that's that was in me before I ever, really, before I ever met Jesus, hmm. and then I met Jesus. And I met white Jesus in particular mm -hmm. in the context of the religious right. And I was told immediately, well, you know, now that you've become a Christian, you have to become a Republican. 
And my mom was like, who are you? And what have you done to my child? <laughs> and that's kind of crazy because Jesus was not a Republican, right? Yeah. So um, Jesus was not even American, let alone a pup. So why do I? So there's all of this. So my very first book that I ever wrote was um, Evangelical Does Not Equal Republican, dot, 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 or Democrat. And since then, a lot of my writing has circled around this question of, well, then what, what does our faith? say to this public square. So I wrote the book left, right, and Christ with a tea partier, um, and forgive us, um, uh, confessions of a compromised faith with several other friends who were historians and, and theologians and, uh, still evangelical, you know, which came out a few years ago. And then finally for, um, the very good gospel came out in 2016. And that really, in many ways was, a marker, like a landmark for me of saying this, after all of the wrestling that I've done, having come out of white evangelicalism, and not just evangelicalism, because I still believe that I'm an evangelical, I'm not a white evangelical, though. But having come out of that space, and having decolonized, undergone and undergoing and a decolonization of my read of the text, the very good gospel is really the best, was my attempt to bring it all together and ask the question, if Jesus was not white, and if the gospel was not written in America, you know, by Bill Bright, per se, right? And if the Bible was not written in the halls of empire, but rather under the feet of empire, what then is the good news? Right. And to whom? And it's very easy, actually, to see exactly to whom the good news was proclaimed in the book of Luke. I mean, Jesus makes it very, very plain in Luke 4. I have come right. to proclaim good news to the oppressed, to set the prisoners free. So when Jesus stands in the temple in Luke 4 and he says, this is why I've come. I'll tell you what, in white evangelicalism, they would say to me, oh, but no, he's talking spiritually, the spiritually oppressed. Well, yeah, he might've been saying that if this was written at Starbucks, but it was not written at Starbucks. It was not written in the halls of empire. It was written by indigenous, colonized, serially um, enslaved people and spoken by brown, indigenous, colonized, serially enslaved Jesus. And so when he's talking to his people, you better believe he's not just saying the spiritually oppressed. Right. He's talking about actual oppression that is happening. And actually, when I get into the very good gospel, one of the things that, that struck me the most was when I started to go into the Old Testament and link it, begin to bring it all together, I see a through line of what the kingdom of God, um, what the purpose, the goal of the king of the kingdom of God is from the first page of the Bible all the way to the last. And what really, I believe the climax coming in Luke, Luke 1 and Luke 4 and Luke 10 and Luke 18, <laughs> it is the confrontation of the kingdoms of men right. by the king of the kingdom of God, yes. who has come to set the image of God free on earth. Right. Yeah. I would very much agree with that understanding. So go ahead. Yeah. Vinny. I'm curious on, as we've gone through Matthew, Mark, and now we're into Luke, we talk about how in Matthew, when you look at something like the sermon on the mountain, he gives the, Jesus gives the beatitudes. There is that sense of blessed are the poor in spirit. And when you get to Luke and all of a sudden, porn spirit is gone. And there's this contrast, these woes where this does seem to be a materialistic thing that Jesus is talking about here. But it's interesting because in, in evangelical culture, we will preach Matthew all the time and that mm -hmm. works. And, and obviously Jesus said it, it's true, but we oftentimes ignore Luke or we'll, we'll forcefully interpret Luke in light of Matthew. Oh, well, That's he exactly obviously right. met spirit here. So I'm curious in your own journey as someone who started off maybe on one side of the equation and you've, you have had a journey, is it through 
I mean, it's probably a whole host of things that you've had your own experience, but is it just opening your eyes to other texts that often are ignored, other social issues? What, what kind of has maybe moved you along on this, own, on this journey yourself? You know, what's funny is that, I mean, honestly, my hermeneutic, the hermeneutic that I still approach the text with, and actually is, I believe, one of the most powerful ways to decolonize the text is I got it through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, my time on staff with them. I was on staff with them for 10 years. And I was a a missionary to urban campuses, not urban, sorry, college campuses. They were urban, but that wasn't the big thing, right? So UCLA, right? So I was, I was trained there in my hermeneutic, which, which tells me that good hermeneutics asks many questions of the text and allows the text that you are reading to speak for itself. So we understand the Bible, the scripture to be words that were written by human beings inspired by God. And what that means is that they were using references that they understood. And we, you know, you go, you look into your Bible and you have references all the time and it gives you references for stuff that it's actually referring to. Like the Bible actually intends to be understood. It's not just this mysterious text that it's not a Ouija board. You can just and put your finger on and, you know, it gives you the future, <laughs> you know, or yeah. tells you if you're going to win the lotto today, that that's not what the Bible is for. Instead, what this text was, was many texts, was many different authors, all of whom were oppressed at the time that they were in, they were writing or under, under threat of oppression. And so when you when you're reading this text you have to read it in its context that's huge context helps to shape our understanding this is i just learned this in intervarsity you also have to learn what do the actual words mean like you it's not enough just to just to read on the face you know uh, let's let's say one of the most one of the more famous misinterpretations that you find in the actual scripture right The King James says in the Song of Solomon of the queen who says, I am dark, but lovely. I am dark, but lovely. I actually, you know, when I first became a Christian, I didn't know any different. I just thought, wow, okay, boy, she has a bad self-image, but that wasn't her self-image. The actual text says, and, but the interpreters could not imagine a black woman And the writing or even the writer of that text saying that black is lovely. So they said, but they, they added, but, and it ended up in our canon. So if you don't know the words, if you don't know what the words are actually saying, then you're at, you're at a deficit in terms of understanding it and then understanding the political context as well. And that's something that most, most white evangelicals are just not either not trained to do or not interested in doing. Because if they were like interested, I mean, it would actually be quite a threat because the political context, the geopolitical context, and by politics, I'm not talking about partisanship, obviously, they didn't have Republicans and Democrats, but I'm talking about the question of how we are supposed to be living together, because that's all politics really is. It's the conversation and the decisions that we make about how the polis will live together. So... In, the, in that conversation that's, that's on the other side of the text, it's part of the context. We have to understand the reality that Jesus is writing the book of Luke in the context of colonization. That when in Luke 1, when the author starts the book by saying on verse 5, in the days of King Herod, that means something. Right. That's not that's not nominal. That's not a throwaway line. There are no throwaway lines in scripture, right? So in the days of King Herod, in the days of a despot, in the days of a man that killed his own children, his own family members in order to remain in power, in the days of a man who was a sellout Jewish person who helping to entrench white supremacist Roman rule. colonial imperial rule on brown Hebrew people in those days. Right. Listen, let's talk a little bit now about where we're at today. 
we've been looking at the gospels and the message of Jesus and this message of the gospel for the poor and the marginalized and bless them, even if it doesn't advantage you in the now. I think a lot of American white evangelicals like myself have been raised kind of with this tradition that says, look, Jesus might have been trying to teach about poor and the marginalized. But at the same time, we look at American prosperity and conclude it's a sign of divine blessing. And I've come to learn the more and more as I've been educated on these kind of issues, being a biblical scholar, to realize that actually the only way you can get this kind of wealth and this kind of prosperity is if you do it at the expense of somebody else. Mm -hmm. You need free labor to get this kind of prosperity. And I began to realize, oh my goodness, this isn't divine blessing. This is, this is injustice. Yes. And then we out, of course, that drove me to repentance and to say, I'm sorry. And I say, I'm sorry to you of, of, and your family, what you've undergone as a result of what's happened and just, and just this ignorance. So talk to us a little bit about the injustices that you see continuing to happen today in this cultural context and how Jesus speaks into that. Well, I mean, before we move forward, I do, I do just want to say that this is actually in scripture as well, right? So when we look at, um, we look at Solomon and we look at David and they're in there, they just were, they were determined to build the temple. And God said to them, I don't want you to build a temple. Don't build a temple. I don't need a temple. I live everywhere. I don't need a house. And, and then they were like, no, but we want a temple. We want to be like everybody else. In other words, we want to be like empires mm-hmm. who were around us. We want to be like those, um, those colonizers and, and who had their big, their big castles and temples. And, and so what did God say? God said, if you build a temple, you're going to have to enslave your people. Don't do it. Right. I don't want you to enslave the image of God. But they said, oh, no, but we want to. So they did. And isn't it funny, like in, in our, in our imperialistic understanding of Christianity, we love King David, um, but God didn't really want even to have other Kings. God said, I'm your King. I don't need you to have a King, let alone a temple. (laughs) So um, you're exactly right. And in order to have this level of prosperity, there has to be free labor. There has to be free land. And I once was at a conference uh, when I wrote Left, Right, and Christ. We went and spoke at, um, at, a Christian, at a Christian school, university. And it was a big, big, like conservative conference. I think I was the only person of color to speak at that conference. And my, me and my co-author spoke. And he said in his talk, He said, there are two ways for nations to prosper. One is through productivity and the other is through plunder. And he said, America prospers because of productivity. And I said, "Uh, excuse me, (laughs) I'm sorry, but hello. When, When I heard you say that, I thought you were going somewhere else with that. And this is why. Because when I hear you say that America has prospered due to productivity, I remember Leah Ballard, my third great grandmother. I know now Fortune Game McGee, who was raped and her children raped and their children raped in order to get more free labor according to the law, because the laws the first race laws and pretty much every race law and structure that was created after that always was there in order to um, protect, establish, and entrench white male money. That was the whole reason for it. The reason for race in America was to establish, protect, and entrench white male money. So you ask, how do we move forward from this? I think the first thing we need to do is we need to see it. And, and I don't think saying it once is enough. I think that there needs to be a, a major truth project in the church, especially since we have been at the center of this thing since the very beginning. I learned that in my research, I learned uh, for Fortune that the church became very, very early, became the managers of enslavement and indenture. 
in the second colony of Maryland, and then after that, mostly all the colonies. And that was in order to not have the, the actual landowners be the managers because they were just enslaving everybody, including white women. Hello. They, they enslaved white women for marrying black men and, and having their children and also enslaved their children in perpetuity. So this Catholic colony of Maryland said, oh, we, we can't, we didn't mean to do that. We're going to now put the, the keys to indenture and enslavement in the hands of the church. So now it's now the church's job to manage the crushing of the image of God on earth. And that took place in the 1600s and lasted for a century. And then after that, you get the, civil, the uh, Revolutionary War and you get the entire church in America splitting along the question of just slavery. Like we think that we are so great. And yet the question of slavery, whether or not we could have slaves split the church. Right. Many times denominations split. Mm -hmm. the, and I, yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. Denominations. Yep. And so we're not clean in this. We really have work to do. So we have to do some deep truth seeking, truth listening right. and truth telling. Yep. And then there needs to be reparations. We need to actually begin to heal the relationships, mend the relationship that was broken by this sin, by um, these acts of violence against the image of God in, in communities, in particularly communities of color, um, among women, um, among many different people groups that have been subjected. I'm curious, Lisa, when you bring up something like that, and, and I'm coming from the perspective of I'm very much still entrenched in a white conservative context. Mm -hmm. And as, as someone who my, my, my career prior to going into ministry was I, I worked as a musician. And so it's it's very common to go on the road. And, you know, when you're you're on the road, like in a funk band, you know, yeah, you're going to room with a 300 pound black dude. And it's just it's like this is just what life is. <laughs> you know, you're, you're very integrated uh, from a cultural standpoint. And you just start seeing things that are different than how you grow up. So I think for largely for my adult life, I've been aware of things and maybe more open to more open to conversations than when I was growing up where it was sure. very sheltered. Mm -hmm. But I think one of the, you have certain kinds of people I'm, I'm kind of processing out loud here as I'm, as I'm just taking in what you're saying. Right. That's so okay, yeah. as you kind of have certain pockets of people where you, you might have people like on the extreme fringe who are just like, nope, there's nothing to fight over. Everyone's good. We all have equality. Like, let's just move on with it. Why are we keep bringing stuff up? And unfortunately, I think, I don't know, in my, in my circles that I don't think that actually represents the majority of people, but that's definitely the loudest voice in the room. And so I think you have a lot of other people who are scared to say anything because now they're risking. It's like, well, we want to hear this other conversation, but we don't want to be chastised as something that other than we are. And so like, there's just a lot of people who don't know what to do in this conversation. They don't know whose voice to listen to. Mm -hmm. um, but like, I'm, I'm just kind of throwing some stuff out there to, you know, like I said, to kind of process this. One of the things that happens though, is even something like you said, like, Hey, reparations is something that needs to happen. And all of a sudden, I think caricatures pop up or like, hey, that's not fair. What about this? Well, you know, the what about start popping up and, and no sure. one enters into a, a dialogue. I actually had a, a friend at church. Uh, and he, he is a black guy who grew up in South Carolina during Jim Crow. And he tells stories about like <laughs> legitimately living in under that. And, and he'll even say, hey, there's there is this town in Illinois that started doing reparations. Can you believe that? And you look it up and it's like, hey, that actually seems like a really amazing program, what they're trying to set up, because it's not imagine. Yeah. And it's not just yeah. giving che checks to everyone. It's not like in the Chappelle's show when they had a skit on that. It's not just like everyone's getting dollars, you know, it's like this is, this is actually investing in your community. But I think the problem does become, and this is where I, I sit back on to get to, to kind of get to around the point. Mm -hmm. In an American society where everyone, I don't care who you are, everyone has been plagued by materialism. How can you do something that I think actually could be very good in terms of rebuilding specific communities? How can you do that in a way that actually is restoring the humanity of people and just doesn't become materialistic and just doesn't propagate issues that are already happening? And like, that's not prone to any one community. Every community is struck by that. Do you get what I'm saying? What I'm asking that though? I think, yeah, I do. I think, I think the only way that you can ask that question is if you are sitting at Starbucks and thinking that everybody else sits at Starbucks too. Mm -hmm. 
right? Like if you're starting from the baseline of Starbucks and then you give reparations, well, that's not fair. Why are they getting more? Mm -hmm. Well, but actually they're not at Starbucks. (laughs) So think about, think about your high school, your high school. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So your high school, did you guys have AP classes? Yeah. Right. You had, who was your favorite teacher? That was my music teacher. Ah, obviously that's yeah, so cool. Yeah. And then, so you had a music teacher and then did you have gym class and all mm-hmm. that stuff too? Right. Yeah. Did you, you know, have a football field? Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you have um, college, like um, go and see different colleges, you know, like a top college tour weeks or something uh, not like really. that? No, not really. Mm-hmm. Did your parents do that? No. I, I, no, no, I come, no, I come from a, a, I'm the, I'm the first guy to have a college education in my family. So, oh, wow. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. That's pretty cool. Congratulations. Yeah, thanks. Let me just say that AP classes, actually, let me ask you this. Did you have books? Mm-hmm. You had books. Yeah. Did you have lockers? Mm-hmm. Right. So most schools that are in predominantly black and brown areas don't have books. Mm-hmm books. Nope. They don't have books. Um, they don't have AP classes. It's not because they don't have smart children. It's because they don't have money. Mm-hmm. Um, and they don't usually have band or theater classes or things like that because all of the arts programs have been cut. All of them. Imagine going to your school, imagine going to your school and not having AP classes. And also all of your teachers are emergency credentialed. In other Mm -hmm. words, they're all substitute teachers. All of your teachers are substitute teachers year round. Mm -hmm. Like that's the actual reality for millions of black and brown people of African descent and Latinos, Southeast Asians in America, Native Americans. Why is that? Well, that has to do with the way that education was funded, the mm-hmm. structure of how funding happens in America, mm-hmm. that it happens um, according to land taxes, right? So land tax, property tax, yeah. Mm-hmm. Property tax, mm-hmm. yeah. So property taxes, the way that they are calculated, that you're going to distribute more money among fewer people. If you have an area that has fewer renters, right? If you have, let's say you have a, a, a building like a, an apartment building that has 50 units and that land, that property tax is going to be X amount of money, right? Because of the amount of land that it, that it sits on, but it's going to be distributed by between 50 units on that land in terms of in terms of distribution to children versus the same amount of land for a single family dwelling in a suburban area which is only then distributed to that one family that lives on that land does that make sense absolutely so that is what causes the disparity a large part of the disparity between funding for white schools and and schools of color in America. And it was intentional. Mm-hmm. This was yeah. not, this didn't just happen. Yeah. Um, it also goes back to how land was, land value was determined. Mm-hmm. Um, land value was determined starting in 1933 when the FHA housing, um, FHA office was, was created. The person who ran it was a segregationist. And when he created the algorithm that would determine what land was how it was valued. One of the things he planted in that algorithm was if there is one black person who lives in this entire community, then the land value of that community automatically goes down. Now imagine a community that is all black people. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's what our federal government yes. created, not based on God, not mm-hmm. based on some, you know, um, of, of course, thing like um, anything that is uh, permanent or, or even like normative. It's just, it was from one guy's racist understanding of, of land value. And he had the power to implant that algorithm into the, into the system. 
And that existed for 30 years. And then it was outlawed in the 1960s. But guess what? It's still happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's still happening. And it's too late anyways, because now Mm -hmm. the inequity is already established. Exactly. 30 years. There's no generational wealth. There's nothing there for a whole. And nobody ever Mm -hmm. made up for it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever made up for it. Mm -hmm. Right. And And that's what reparations would be. Mm -hmm. For every dollar that comes into an African-American community, it circulates maybe one time before it leaves the community. Whereas right. if the dollar bill comes into a white community, it circulates five mm-hmm. times before it leaves that community. Right. So and why have, is that? Yeah. That's because it's harder for us to get small businesses started right. because the loans could, don't come as easy. Right. Right. And it's also harder for us to actually get a home loan. So all of these things, yep. they all, it's, it is systemic and structural right. mm-hmm. and it's, it's roadblocks that actually really do exist. That if you took away those roadblocks and you were to make up for, for the deficit that exists because of the decades and centuries of roadblocks, well, then we could really literally, we could not only could we play on an even playing field, but we actually, as a whole nation, would just flourish because you would have, you would have millions of people who are currently not only at a personal deficit, but also at a structural systemic and generational deficit, you would now bring them to the place where they could, they actually have capital to spend in the market. The marketplace would flourish. The marketplace would have more buyers. Um, You wouldn't have, you wouldn't have the need actually for many of the, of the uh, safety net systems that we have and safety nets could be used as actual safety nets, not as, as almost like penance that doesn't really do anything. So what we really need and what reparations really is, is a, is a full-scale restructuring of the way that we live together in acknowledgement of those, the structure we currently have is a result of choices that we made to intentionally protect the wealth of particular images of God at the expense of other images of God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, you know, when I first started looking into these kind of issues, just to, to write on them a couple of years ago, and I'm sorry to say it's, it was only a few years ago, I began to realize, wait a minute, the whole notion that once we ended slavery, everything was taken care of, because the reality is the sinfulness that is inherent that brought about something like slavery wasn't eradicated by com- because some law mm-hmm. outlawed it. Mm-hmm. And as long as you had those people in power that benefited from that system, they're going to do everything they can, even though slavery is now illegal, to maintain that power and that power base. Yes. And that's why I think two of the biggest issues I think we need to look at today, and then I have a question after this, just make this comment, is one is the issue of voter suppression. Because if you don't allow people to vote, you're never going to change that political system. You're going to let those people Mm -hmm. stay in power. And then I think the issue of education is indeed perhaps one of the greatest issues that there is today. And if we Mm -hmm. want to talk about Jesus's ethic of saying, hey, we need to take care of the poor and the marginalized, even though it may not benefit you now, because Mm -hmm. they'll take you into eternal dwellings in eternity. I think one of the ways that we do that is to say, hey, those of you that have good educations now, go work in those inner city schools, even though you don't get as much money now. Let's improve the quality of that education by bringing into it. And I say, I think people are like, well, what do we do and how do we fix this? I don't want it to hurt. And the answer is, Jesus said it's going to hurt. That's the whole idea of that. Yes. Uh, and I think we need to, to look past this and go, hey, how can we bring systemic change into this? But mm-hmm. the other thing that I wanted to, to harken back on was, I think a lot of white people, and I'm speaking from my own context here, thinking, okay, there's a lot of ignorance out there and a lot of unawareness out there. And we think from this individualistic worldview that we've just been raised with as, as evangelicals, and we think, well, I'm not racist. Therefore, you know, racism isn't, isn't a, a reality. And as soon as we talk about systemic racism, oh, I don't, I, you know, we, we, right. we resist yeah. because that, yeah, yeah, yeah. it's going to be something <laughs> uncomfortable for me. Yeah. And what you do in your book is you say, here is my story. And people can't argue with stories. You know, I mean, if you talk about one person being lynched, that should be enough to go, this is intolerable. Mm-hmm. Just that one story. Mm-hmm. And you talk about that the young boy in 1950 and his story. And, and I think what we need more mm-hmm. of today is we need, like yourself, we need the stories, mm-hmm. you know, of saying, okay, look, they don't have textbooks. Mm-hmm. This is not a fair playing field. It's and not. all we're talking about is trying to figure out how to way to make the playing field fair and, and equal. I mean, Rob, yeah. think about this. 
wouldn't you rather if you're look if 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 you're a highly competitive person, right? And you are driven to win. You want to win. You want to win the game, right? Don't you want to win fairly? Right. I mean, I would I would not want to win. I wouldn't want to I mean, it wouldn't be valuable, right? If you won and you knew that you had cheated, that's, don't we teach our kids that, right? And yet when it comes to actual life, we are literally playing on a soccer field that's on a 45 degree angle Mm -hmm. with rules that say that a particular team or, you know, actually many of the particular teams has to always play uphill. They mm, always yeah. have to play with less facing people uphill mm-hmm. yeah. with less people. Right. And when, and the ball gets switched whenever they get, they don't get to play with the round ball. That's when, when, when the, yeah, when it's yeah. the side for the white folk to play, they get to play with the round bouncy ball. The flat ball gets brought in for the black, yeah. for the black right, and brown right. folk. Right. So, and we have to play uphill. So are we ever going to win? No, right. you can't mm-hmm. win like that. So the question really has to become, what do we need to do in order to level the playing field. How do we level the playing field for these oppressed soccer players, right? For these, uh, or football players, if you're overseas, right? So how do you, how do we, because, you know, Jesus would not stand right. that kind of a game. He just wouldn't. Right. It's just not right. So, so how do you do it? You do it structurally or you do it systemically. Right. So Taco, okay. So one of the common arguments now is the fact that yeah, but you're, ignore, you're, you're ignoring all the problems that happen in the black communities. The fact that their fathers aren't there. And the, oh, and they, God. Right? Yeah, right. Okay, you know what I'm going. Okay. Yeah. No, and, let's do it. Let's go there. Yeah, yeah, let's right. do it. Let's and have Come on. The reality is the black community has their own problems and they're not, they're not owning up to those problems. Okay. Can we talk here? Yes. All right. Let's, let's, let's really have this conversation. All right, people. You need, the New York Times reported a few years back it was 2015, that 1.5 million black men are missing from black communities. Missing. Do you know where they are? Yeah, I do. In prison yep. or dead right. after confrontations with police officers and vigilantes, but most of them are locked up in prison. Now, why are they locked up in prison? They're locked up in prison because in the early 19, actually it was 1967, um, Nixon's uh, legislative director and he were talking and they, they came up with this idea to begin to use buzzwords, um, racial dog whistles in order for him to win the 1967 election. And he did. And very, very soon after, and the reason why that worked is because remember 1967 was only two years after passage of the Voting Rights Act and white folk were pissed, especially white Southerners. And they, sorry, can I say pissed? <laughs> sorry. sorry about you that. You already but did, so it's too late. They were mad. They were very mad. They were very mad. And so, uh, and they were actually literally like steaming and they left the Democratic Party. They had been Democrats. Southern, Southern Democrats were actually the norm until that moment of the Voting Rights Act. And so Nixon wanted to court them into the Republican Party. So they did. And then around 1971, when he was you know, coming back around for election again, his, um, his legislative director said, you know, we need to launch a war on drugs as a response to the war on poverty, which by the way, had lowered poverty, cut it in half in the United States in less than a decade. So poverty rates in America had dropped by half in less than 10 years up to that point. And then in 1971, 72, when, when Nixon was running for office again, he decides he's going to launch this war on drugs. Now, there had never been a war on drugs before. And, the, and, and at that moment, the people who were taking opioids the most in the entire country were Southern white women. They were the most drugged up people in the entire country. Why? Probably because of the violence that's happening down there. Wherever you see hard racism, you usually also see hard patriarchy, which means abuse, abuse of, I mean, gender, gender violence, gender-based violence. So they were taking opioids at very high rates, white women in the South, but nobody focused the police on white women in the South. And, and in 1995, 
um, Nixon's legislative director actually confessed, said, you know, when we did that, we had no intention of actually doing anything with drugs. This wasn't about drugs. This was about, he said, this was about giving political cover pretense for going in and busting up our political foes communities. And guess who those political foes were targeted, acknowledged expressly, explicitly by, by Nixon hippies and black people. So the war on drugs was mounted in order to break up our communities. And guess how they did it? They pumped drugs into our communities through the mafia and through police and through small time drug dealers. They pumped heroin into my community. I'm sitting in right now, Philadelphia. And young men that were singing doo-wop just a generation, not even a generation, like a decade before that, doo-wop on the corners in this community, all of a sudden are dropping like flies from heroin overdoses, including my uncle, my uncle Richard. And the next generation, Reagan, launched his drug war Mm -hmm. and did exactly the same thing. It was a racial dog whistle. It was pretense for breaking up the communities. With that followed very close after three strikes and you're out, all those hardline laws that then were all pretense for rounding up political foes who were my community. And guess where my community ended up? In jail and dead. And in the 80s, it wasn't heroin, it was crack. Well, I was even going to say, wouldn't wouldn't it be... uh... Kind of similar what happened with Reagan because with Reagan he basically uh, over criminalized I don't know where you would say but crack became a bigger uh, strike yes, against you than cocaine exactly exactly and, and then you could look at from a demographic standpoint who's using crack and who's using cocaine and who's actually going to jail exactly right? who's right. getting who's getting off yep. with like a pat on the hand and yep. who's going to jail yeah. and how long are they going to jail for mm-hmm. right. for having a dime bag yeah. a dime bag meaning you know I don't even know what dime bag is but it's not that much. <laughs> Of, uh-huh. I mean, I'm not, I've never done drugs in my whole life, so I don't know. But all I know is when you have just a dime bag, imagine uh, maybe $10 worth, I guess, is that what it is of, of, of marijuana? You go away for 15 years. Mm-hmm. Right. And a lot of this is really well chronicled if you're listening in Michelle Alexander's book, The New Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, at uh, least just uh, when I started reading The New Jim Crow, my son told me about it. And I read the first chapter and a half and I had to stop. I literally stopped reading that book for six months, maybe even a year before mm-hmm. I finally went, I go, you know, I need to go back and read the rest of it. Mm-hmm. And I'm glad I did, but it was that, it, it was like, I did not so know right. any of it. No one told me this stuff. No. And I grew up in an American public school. I did. And I, now I wasn't the best student, so we won't go there. Um, but, uh, and I have uh, my bachelor's degree is from a state university in California in history. And I didn't do a lot of American history, but how do I not know this stuff? Well, you know, um, Michelle Alexander didn't know, and she was a lawyer. uh, (laughs) She didn't know. She just started connecting dots, you know, in the 90s. The injustice, you know, I was going to say, if anyone wants to say, well, that stuff is is a thing of the past. What you've brought up today is, of course, the injustice and the way the educational system is is set up. It's automatically set up where one's going to have a greater likelihood of failure and one's going to have a greater likelihood of success. We talked very briefly about voter suppression, but the reality is you're not even giving these people an opportunity to represent themselves, especially because exactly if you have a right. felony, by the way, you can't vote in, in, any longer at all. And why is that? Yeah. Why is that? That's because we mm-hmm. passed a law to make that the case. And why mm-hmm. do we pass the law? Who does that benefit? That's right. That well, has even, been the question. You know, mm-hmm. something that's, that struck me is even things like writing off interest on your home loans mm-hmm. that benefits white people who own the homes. It's just exactly it benefits right. people like myself who own, own a home. That's exactly that there's right. There's these things that are just systemic that are just intricate to the system. And then you go back and go, yeah, as a Christian and as a biblical scholar, I look and go, the sinfulness of man was not eradicated here. Mm-hmm. And the people are just going to find new ways to do it, yeah. right? Whether it's convict leasing and peonage, and then you go yeah. to the, the segregation. And if you want to stop and say, so I have a, a really good friend, uh, African-American young man who teaches in inner city, uh, Oakland in the Bay area. And I was talking to him at the beginning of this process a couple of years ago. I said, what do, what do you think about this? And I think one of the police brutality issues had just happened. I don't remember which one it was. Mm-hmm. And he said, Rob, he said, if people won't 
recognize the issues by now, they're never going to recognize it. Mm. And I'm thinking, mm-hmm. okay, you live in this world and you see it all day long, but you don't understand people like myself, this is new news to us. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. not something that's just so common to us. Mm-hmm. Michelle Alexander talks about, she goes, if the police know that the students at Harvard are doing the drugs too, right? Mm-hmm. Know that the kids at Harvard's dads are lawyers and even people. more actually. Yeah. Yeah. And they're not going to bust them because why would they spend all that time and effort when they can't get a conviction? They mm-hmm. go, Oh my goodness. So mm-hmm. yeah. You know, when, you know, thinking back to this neighborhood, this neighborhood was absolutely gutted, just gutted by Reagan's war on drugs. Mm. My grandmother lived one block from here. Um, she got Alzheimer's at some, at one point when she was uh, getting older and she died at 74 years old by being beaten to death by a crack addict in this mm. neighborhood after crack had been pumped into the neighborhood through the mafia and through police officers and through small time drug dealers as part of the war on drugs. Right. So, and then what happened? Not only did my grandmother die, but you literally had young men and women die in homes all over this community. So when I drew it, when I came back here, I was gone for about a decade because I was honestly, because I was wrapped up in my little white evangelical world. And then I came back because my, my uncle invited me to speak at his church. Uh, one, again, one block in the other direction from where I'm living right now. And I spoke at the church and on the way home, we drove, I said, can we drive past grandma's old house? So we did. And the neighborhood looked like a war zone. And this was a really flourishing um, black community in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, you know, when I was coming, when I was a little kid in the 80s, flourishing. But now it literally like boarded up homes, homes with no doors or, or, or windows just looked like fire. I mean, just it, nobody here. Where was everybody? I said to my mom, what happened? And you know what she said? The drug wars happened. Mm-hmm. The drug wars happen. And that's that everybody who's still, there are people who still live here from that time. They will tell you, and guess what's happening now? What's happening all over the country. Think first, what could possibly benefit? How could white men benefit from this? Because they always do. They allowed the community to rot. And I mean, rot. And then They swooped in just 10 years ago and began to buy up all of the land. Mm. And now we have dog grooming shops everywhere, cafes, people walking their dogs with like lattes in their hand. And all of a sudden, this is like one of the most up and coming communities in the, in the, in the whole city of Philadelphia and, and also incredibly expensive. Um, to buy a home in for the, for the local economy. I was coming in from Washington, DC. So I was like, wow, this is a bargain. Mm. <laughs> Cause DC is not even like, it's not yeah. even an option anymore for me, but that's what's happening. And that's what happened. We have had layered oppression. Mm. Not only did we have slavery, that nobody ever said sorry for, or gave reparation for, but then we had a hundred years of Jim Crow, 90 years of Jim Crow and Jim Crow included free labor, Mm -hmm. free labor from peonage. By the way, did you know that, but Alabama around the turn of the 20th century was making about 85% of its GDP off of peonage Mm. convict leasing. And so that's how, that's how it morphs. And why? Because of the, the loophole in the 13th amendment. So what they did is they said, well, we still need free labor. We still, you know, we need in order to have our economy flourish, we need that. So what do they do? They start picking up black boys and men off the street for sitting on a park bench for too long and throwing them back on the plantation and throwing away the key. I think some people might not know what the loophole in the 13th Amendment is. Do you want to clarify what that is? So, yeah. So the 13th Amendment says we now abolish slavery, except in the case of imprisonment. Right. 
And the reason why they had that little loophole was in order to get that passed, the Southern states required them to have that loophole in order for them to agree to it. So that was their way of using now the prison system to do the same thing that slavery did. And um, so, you know, it's funny when, when Michelle Alexander's book came out, The New Jim Crow, I understand why she said that, but actually it really is the new slavery. That's really mm-hmm. what it is. And to this day, they use convict leasing. It's not, it hasn't been outlawed and it hasn't, it hasn't been um, taken away. In fact, only until about maybe seven years ago, Whole Foods used convict lease labor. Victoria's Secret used convict lease labor. Um, in fact, most of our industrial desks that you use in your schools and also in office buildings are made to this day by convict lease labor, meaning yeah. free labor. Right, mm-hmm. right. I think the more and more I've been just dwelling in the New Testament, of course, that's what I do. And Vinny and I have been doing these podcasts now on the Gospels, and I've been writing a devotional guide as well as part of the ministry that we have here. I begin to realize that I don't think we can move forward as a church, mm-hmm. let alone as a nation, but as let's just say as a church, unless we begin with repentance. Yeah. I think this has been, and the reality is that when you say that, a lot of people think, well, I didn't do anything, so why do I need to repent? And the answer is, no, we're talking about corporate repentance and corporate mm-hmm. sin mm-hmm. that we've benefited from this. And I think we need to stop and go, okay. And to wrestle, kind of bring this to a climax, to wrestle with Jesus who says, do these things for the sake of the other, even if they can't pay you back because they'll give you these eternal dwellings as we discussed. Mm-hmm. This is what we're talking about. It means we, we need to bring systemic change to not only bring the playing field equal, but that is going to mean that it might hurt me and it probably will hurt the white community that has benefited from all of these things. I think that's the only way we can go forward. And I don't think unless the church repents, I don't think there is a hope for it. If the church does not repent, and by the church, I mean the people of the church do right. not repent, then there will be judgment. Yes. Judgment hurts. Yes. You, there is another way. There doesn't need to be judgment. There could be choice. The church can choose to love. Right. The like church Jesus. can choose, right? The church can choose the way of Luke 10, can choose the way of the good Samaritan. Right. That when you see your brother laying on the road, stripped, beaten, you have to understand that if it's just, you know, one person, then yeah, whatever. Right. But you know that this road, actually, people get beat up all the time. That means it's structural. And that means something needs to be done with this road. We need, we need more lighting on this road. We need, we need more, more public safety on this road. We have to actually fix the way this road works. And if we refuse to do that, we are not being the good Samaritan in that case. We're being like, you know, like, like, the, like the church people who actually walk to the other side in order to not get unclean. Our call, our call is to love in public. Our call is to love through every means possible. And that includes the law. And, you know, I'm, I'm actually drawn to the Lord's prayer, which also in the book of Luke, going back to Luke, if you don't mind, I'd love to read for you a portion from fortune. Sure. That is actually about the Lord's prayer in Luke. So Jesus teaches his followers to pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and do not bring us to the time of trial but rescue us from the evil one. This is actually Matthew, but you know, you have the same kind of version in in Luke. Christians are taught this prayer in Sunday school. We place our little palms together in front of our little hearts. We close our eyes and we pray the Lord's prayer by rote. Rarely does the Sunday school teacher inform the children of the context of that prayer. As Obrey Hendricks does in his book, The Politics of Jesus. Hendricks explains that Jesus is teaching his followers to pray for the end of Caesar's reign and the beginning of God's. The prayer 
for daily bread is a prayer for the end of the people suffering under the colonized oppression of Rome. Of Rome, they were starving. Bread was their staple food, yet there was not enough. According to Hendricks, it was common custom for Caesar to send his soldiers to roll their cart through the streets and toss bread to the starving crowds. That practice was called the daily bread. When Jesus teaches us to pray that God, not Caesar, provide our daily bread, he is calling for the end of Caesar's reign. Then Jesus says, Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. The Greek word for forgive, Hendricks explains, can also be translated to release. To forgive is to release those who owe a debt to you, to cut the tie that binds you together and to send them away. Jesus calls the people to pray that they will be released from their debt. This is a prayer for Jubilee, that economic system instituted by God when God governed the people of Israel in Leviticus 25, 8 through 55. Jubilee came every 49 years. In the 50th year, all debt was forgiven. All property returned. All enslaved people set free. This is as much promise as it is prayer. The king of the kingdom of God has come to earth and can release them. Then Jesus calls the people to do something even more radical. He calls them to release Rome from its debt to the Hebrews. In the year Jesus was born, Rome crucified 500 Northern Galilean resistors. Each day for several days, Rome spread salt on the lands of those they conquered to prevent them from being able to grow their own food, making them dependent on the empire. Cut the tie, Jesus is saying. Turn your back to Rome. Turn your face to God. Look to God for our daily bread. Look to God to move heaven and earth to release you from your debt to Rome. Look to God to pay back all that Rome stole from you, not only in the by and by, but on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive Rome, release Rome so that you may actually be filled. I believe he is saying, quote, you don't need Caesar for daily bread. God is the God who rained manna from heaven. You do not need empire to live. You do not need Caesar to survive. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus multiplies the bread loaves and feeds 5,000 people. We see very similar thing in Luke. Forgive Rome so that you may actually receive what you need. Now, let me just go back and let me explain this because some people can get this twisted. What I am not saying is no reparations. You know, it's, it's worthy of saying the chapter on reparations comes before this text, before okay, this yeah. part of my book. And so what I'm saying here is that reparations is both jubilee and forgiveness is jubilee. So it is forgiveness for those who have, who have done the infraction, who have actually mounted the debt, but it's reparations as well for the giving back of what has been stolen. So what we are looking at when we're looking at Luke, when we're looking at, um, at the Lord's prayers, we're looking at a call, a call for, a call for those who have been under the boot and the knee of Caesar to look Caesar in the eye and let Caesar know, I do not need you. I have God. And guess what God can do? God can move mountains and make it possible for reparations to be paid. Hello. Yeah. God can take out the rulers that get in the way. God can make it possible for my needs. It's not desire. It's not materialistic. My need for books in my schools. Right. My need for rats and roaches out of my home. My need for good, healthy food in my area that is not right. sugar, corn, or soy that, that actually cause high rates of diabetes and heart disease because all I have is corner stores and no supermarkets in my community. Hmm. God 
God can move the mountains and get the toxic dumping out of my neighborhood that you have put in through your laws and your policies and your zoning. I would rather you choose to remove these things through reparations and repair. But if you don't, I'm not going to wait for you. I'm going to cut the tie that binds us by forgiving you. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to release you. You don't need to give me a darn thing. Now I'm going to God. Mm. And when God comes for it, God will get it. And that means now you will be under judgment. I wish it didn't come to that. But God cares about my needs. And I am now calling on God to meet the need. Uh, Thank you so much for being with us. This is... um something I think we need to keep wrestling with and grappling with. And I hope our listeners kind of rewind and listen to this again and pick up Michelle Alexander's book and your book, Fortune. Uh, Lisa, how can we learn more about your work and follow and follow what you do? You can follow at lisasharonharper.com. You can basically reach everything that I do right there. Okay. Um, but you know, on, on socials, it's Lisa S Harper on Twitter and Instagram and Lisa Sharon Harper right. on uh, Facebook. Oh, thank you so much for being with us. This has been uh, truly a, a pleasure. And again, I, I just want to share with you that my sorrow, my sadness, my my repentance before you for my part in this. And I know uh, hopefully I can begin to lead a change in the white evangelical church to say, we need to stop and wake up. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And I think you're very right, actually. And if we don't wake up, judgment will indeed come. And it doesn't need to get to that because we need to fix this before before then you can still choose. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. Please subscribe to and like our podcast. You can follow Rob's blog at determinedtruth.com or purchase his books on amazon.com. See you next time.